Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Noon Edition. White nationalists and other right-wing groups gathered at a local park this weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia, demonstrating against the removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Arguments between counter-protesters and white nationalists quickly became violent, and the rally ended in horror after a speeding car plowed into a march of counter-protesters, leaving 19 injured and one dead. The event sparked protests across the nation. Today, our panelists are discussing the state of hatred and racism in America. Our guests today are Beth Applegate. She's the co-chair of Standing Up for Racial Justice Bloomington. Janine Bell is an IU law professor at the Maurer School of Law. And Amy Nelson is the executive director of Central Indiana Alliance Against Hate. Thank you all for being here today. We invite you to join today's conversation. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also email questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. So, Janine, I'd like to just start with you. If you can just, this demonstration by white nationalists, was it about more than a Confederate statute? If you a statue, if you can kind of describe the impetus for all of this? Well, absolutely. Um, White nationalists are organizing across the country in various spaces, um, in various ways. And it was a call out to lots of white nationalist groups. So it was an attempted show of force. And um, they did quite well at showing force. Can can you explain the definitions here? I think that's important to get to off the topic. What is a white nationalist? Is it what is uh, a white supremacist? And what are the differences between these different terms? Um, white nationalists and white supremacists are the same thing, basically. Um, meaning they believe that it, there is a racial hierarchy, and whites are absolutely at the top of it. And they vary in their ways of, the different groups vary in their ways of achieving, um, you know, sort of uh, what they want. What um, They vary in what they want, right? Um, violent white nationalists, for instance, believe that um, individuals who are not white should be killed. Um, others simply believe that in separation, meaning um, that whites, um, individuals who are not white should not live among whites. Um, White nationalists over the years have believed that um, non-whites should be expelled from the country. Uh, For many years, white nationalist groups uh, suggested that they're um, a portion of the United States um, specifically states in the West were part of, should be part of a five-state white nation, um, including states out West, G- Washington, G- et cetera. Uh, this is J.D. Graham sitting in for Bob today. Uh, th- is this, you're talking about uh, all kinds of races. This isn't just an immigration issue. This is not just an immigration um, issue. So, for instance, um, African Americans are usually um, on the uh, sort of group, one of the groups of people that white nationalists insist should not be um, part of their society, part of American society, part of this um, country. So after this happened in Charlottesville, there were a number of rallies in response, a number of vigils. I want to play a clip from a, a vigil that you helped organize here, Beth. Um, with I'm sorry, what's the acronym for your organization? Surge. Surge. Sure. Okay, that was the acronym you were using earlier. So I want to play a clip from that, and then I want to give you a chance to just talk about the response post-Charlottesville. Picture this, a beautiful, quiet, bucolic college town with the statue of General Robert E. Lee in the park. The city had the good sense to rename the park Emancipation Park, but their decision to remove that awful statue was met with a white supremacist, white nationalist protest. There is no excuse for violence. There never is. Our hearts are with the people of Charlottesville, especially the 35 or more injured, and the families of the dead. Our hearts are with everyone in our nation who feels scared and anxious and who feel the sting of discrimination in this great country of ours. And that was Julie 
Thomas speaking at, at that rally on Sunday. What kind of turnout did you have just a, a day after the events in Charlottesville? We had probably over 200 Bloomingtonians and Monroe County residents at the rally with us on Sunday evening. We were amazed and heartwarmed, certainly as somebody who was born and raised in Bloomington, to see um, what an amazing response. Uh, we began organizing the rally Saturday evening, and by Sunday evening, 200-plus people were on the courthouse square standing in solidarity, solidarity for racial justice. And you had a, a similar one in uh, Indianapolis, right, Amy? Yes, our search group there also did a, uh, a similar effort where it was announced late Sunday night or late Saturday night, and then the event was held on Sunday. And there was a few hundred people there as well. Peaceful event, um, people from all walks of life, mm -hmm. uh, cross races, religions, LGBTQ, and, and er, uh, lots of signs of encouragement as well. Uh, very pleased with the turnout that we saw. So I think sort of the natural next step is then where do we go from that in terms of, um, so we're at these rallies, we're showing support, but how do we, how does that translate into real change so we don't continue to see things happening like what happened in Charlottesville? Well, unfortunately, what as Janine mentioned, unfortunately, what happened in Charlottesville is is not something that is a new event, unfortunately. It's uh, been an escalation. This one was more public uh, than previous events have had. But certainly, if you are a member of a group who is commonly targeted with hate, you've been living this for a long time, whether it's because of your sexual orientation or um, because you are transgender or whether you are Muslim or Jewish, we and then certainly do to against persons of color. We've seen an escalation at the national level of targeting when it comes to religious. The Jewish community centers, you know, across our country had received bomb threats earlier this year. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center re, uh, released some updates showing that the largest increase of hate-based groups were those that were anti-Muslim, and so so unfortunately this has been happening. And I think one of the things that we all need to learn and acknowledge is that there is this history uh, and that this isn't a new event. There's just a systemic problem that's been there for a long time that we saw during President Obama's administration, maybe some things got shoved down. And as one of the signs at our Indianapolis um, rally pointed out, you know, make racist fear again. And that you know, there, there was kind of that trampling down. The views like this weren't going to be socially accepted. And now it appears that there is a movement where individuals with these bigoted views feel that they have support for those views and can be very public in that. Did you want to add to that, Beth? Yes, I agree with everything that Amy said. And in terms of, so what's next? Um, because it isn't enough to show up for a couple of hours on courthouse squares across the country. Um, this is a long haul uh, organizing effort. And one of the ways that showing up for racial justice surge um, organize, organizes white people to become engaged in a multiracial movement for racial justice. And we do this working at the individual level often. Um, interesting enough, yesterday I got a text message from someone who had attended a surge meeting here in Bloomington last fall. And she said, you know, at the time, I really didn't understand what you were talking about or why something like surge was needed. And now I do. And so one of the things that we work with is how to help white people interrupt racism when they see it. And one of the things that I said at the rally yesterday is it's really easy for white people for us to get into some of our good white person thinking and to differentiate ourselves and say, oh, you know, white supremacy is, um, you know, what we saw in Charlottesville. It's those people that say all lives matter. It's those folks who maybe are tattooed with swastikas, et cetera. And part of what the surge uh, helps white folks do is to understand that racism lives in all white people. We were grown up uh, in this system. It is systemic, to Amy's point. And you know, beyond educating of individual white folks, we also work with organizations, 
to um, think about how we need to change policies and procedures at the structural level. We educate folks how institutions make a web of systemic racism, so financial institutions, education, healthcare, all create um, inequitable outcomes. Um, and we have to address that. Let's talk about that for a minute. When you say uh, there's a responsibility to, to interrupt racism mm -hmm. and that that's something you teach, what does that look like? So, for example, um, some of the things we prompt, you know, practice is we're at Thanksgiving and Uncle Ray says something, you know, racist. How do we engage in one of the core values that Surge holds is how do we engage the hearts and minds of white people? So we really discourage differentiating ourselves from other folks, um, remembering where we were or are in our own journey of interrupting, and we would practice different scenarios. So, for example, yesterday. I had to walk my talk. I was sitting in the optometry clinic here at IU with my 94-year-old mother, and a young white man came in with a Confederate cap on with a rebel. So I looked across the room for, for a few minutes, and I thought to myself, okay, Beth, here it is once again. And I went over, and I said to him, um, can I have a conversation with you? And he said, sure. And I said, can you tell me a little bit about what that hat means to you. And he said, well, I got it from my cousin and it, it is about my heritage. And um, you know, one of the follow-up questions, I didn't choose to use it yesterday, would have been, and tell me more about your heritage. And um, so he quickly said, it's not racist. And I said, you know, um, the impact on me um, is that it does feel racist. And I said, are you familiar with what happened in Charlottesville over the weekend? He said, yes, sort of, but you know, that wasn't really racism either. And I said, you know, I really, I disagree. Um, and I think that that was racist and was white supremacy. Um, and I really stand against that. And I, st I stand against those values of hate. And I'm really uncomfortable with you wearing that hat. And I think a lot of people in Bloomington would be too. And he looked at me and he said, well, that's your opinion. You know, and will, did I change his heart and mind in that particular uh, conversation? Probably not. And what I did is plant a seed that I can hope will germinate, that I can hope will make him think twice about putting that cap on here in Bloomington. And then driving home, I had another opportunity um, in my neighborhood, um, a new uh, flag related to uh, white supremacy showed up on one of my neighbor's homes. So I stopped by and I knocked on the door. They weren't home, but two of my white neighbors were out in their yards and I said, you know, seems like this flag just uh, showed up this morning. Have you had a chance to talk to our neighbors? And they said no. And oh, gosh, that's kind of uncomfortable. And I said, yes, you know, it can be uncomfortable. And this is the time that we really need to make sure if Bloomington is, you know, as we espouse a safe and civil community for all, um, and you believe in, in diversity and inclusion, this is a, is a time that we need to engage our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues, our family in conversations about our core values. You find people are intimidated to bring those subjects up sometimes? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think one of the things that white supremacy has taught all of us uh, and what it wants most out of us and the structures it sets up is to keep us isolated and silent. And so we're very unpracticed as white people. We're almost told, don't bring up race. Don't talk about race. And so we're unpracticed. And yes, sometimes it is intimidating. And also part of white culture is perfectionism. And so a lot of white people get tripped up because what if I don't say it right? What 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 if I do something wrong? And so part of the what we practice at Surge is you've got to try and then reflect. And Surge provides then a place to reflect. I coulda, woulda, shoulda. Um, what went well? What could I do differently? What could have been some of the other responses? Um, so I always try to, I mean, in situations where it's not uh, violent, you know, so uh, bystander training is something else, and there's a set of skills and interventions that are appropriate when we're witnessing violence. Um, and there is the conversation when I see a flag at my neighbor's home. 
and I see a young white man I don't know in the optometry clinic wearing his rebel confederate hat. Mm -hmm. And we need to be skilled and practice those range of conversations and interventions. I'm sorry, go ahead. And next steps, we also need legislation, but we can talk about that in a second. (laughs) 812-855-0811, or you can tweet at us at Noon Edition. Janine, I was actually hoping you could chime in here because we're talking about changing people's heart and minds. But again, it's these systemic issues as well. So what what can we be doing in in that field? Well, with respect to the issue of legislation, we need legislation to address, hate crime legislation specifically to address these sorts of incidents. Take, for instance, someone who leaflets um, anti-Semitic or racist flyers on someone's lawn. Currently in Indiana, with no hate crime legislation, there are very few remedies for prosecutors use to address this sort of terror. I mean, you can imagine uh, someone finding, and this is has happened in Bloomington, happened in 1999, Benjamin Smith was leafleting the community. Um, and I spoke with law enforcement and they indicated, listen, there was nothing we could really do that's trespass at most. And they, they had an identified perpetrator. That's trespass at most. Um, that's part of the reason we need hate crime legislation. I know that critics say, you know, there are other, um, that's a crime um, already under the law. But the incident is very violent to the individuals targeted. And under the criminal law, currently, it is not very much of a crime. And I'm just, if you could speak more to just also these issues like policing and housing and just these other sort of inequalities that are feeding and sort of perpetuating the problems. Yes, those are not necessarily related to the specific issue of hatred targeted at um, particular um, individuals. Um, You know, we need to address first the fact that there is an absence in Indiana law um, with respect to hate crime legislation. Indiana is one of, I believe, is it five states that five doesn't states. have hate? And we just heard in the newscast that Speaker Bosma says that he, he want, he's uh, calling for it. Right? He's saying, he says the state needs a specific hate crime bill. Um, do you, in your work as a, a law professor, uh, do you know that when we have this legislation in place, does it affect the number of hate crimes? Um, yes. Um, it can make the number of hate crimes go up. Um, and that is something meaning um, that suddenly more hate crimes are recognized because you have law enforcement that has an incentive to collect data in a particular way because these are crimes now that can be prosecuted. And uh, political leaders need to understand that. Your number of hate crimes will go up, and I've seen it happen in other jurisdictions, um, after you pass a hate crime law, because suddenly law enforcement has an incentive. Um, one of the things that I was told many, many years ago by a law enforcement um, uh, agent is that, you know, listen, if it's just a leaflet, that's littering, and we don't pay attention to that. If it's a hate crime, then it's something different, worth paying attention to and worth addressing. So you're going to have that counted. But as far as the number of acts or um, that sort of thing, will any of those numbers decrease by um, with legislation? Is it a deterrent? Yeah. Is it a, does it work as a deterrent or is it just... Because hate crimes are underreported, we're not going to be able to tell whether it's actually a deterrent. I don't think that individuals who are committing hate crimes are thinking about whether this can be punished under the law. So, for instance, take the... Uh, individual in Charlottesville who drove his car um, into uh, protesters. He probably knew that some of them might be killed and murder was against the law, but that didn't stop him. I think for most people, when it comes to hate crime laws, because first of all, just a reminder, for something to be classified as a hate crime, it actually has to be a crime of some kind, as Janine alluded to. So crime to damage or property in some kind. 
And if there, if a crime doesn't occur, then it may be something that's protected under First Amendment speech rights, et cetera. Doesn't mean then that we as a society can't use our own First Amendment rights to try to counter whatever that um, hateful speech may have been that occurred in that case. So Indiana is one of only five states without a state hate crime law. Passage of a law certainly then tells victims or those who are targeted with the bias or with the hate that there is going to be justice served for them. So whether or not a hate crime is actually a deterrent, you could argue that under most crimes uh, or most laws that are in place, but it allows the community that's been targeted to know that justice will prevail, there will be an adequate investigation, and that they have protections to try to um, get a just remedy for what may have occurred in that particular case. And I'm, I'm hopeful um, here in the recent days to hear many legislators in Indiana speak out on this issue. Uh, those of us who've been working on this issue for quite some time know that there have been uh, several bills introduced every year for several years. Last year, the bill never even made it to the Senate floor. In 2016, the bill did pass the Senate in a bipartisan show of support and then died in the House by ha not getting a hearing. This year, it didn't even make it out of the Senate. So legislators have to explain to us why that isn't moving. I've been happy to hear the comments here in recent days, but will that hold through to the legislative session? I want to see. Yeah. I guess, what what is the right way to deal with these extremist groups if you're in a place like Charlottesville right now? Um, uh, Amy, we'll let you go. <laughs> well, I think, you first of all, you have to have concern for your own safety and being uh, conscious of that. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, recommends rather than going all the time face to face, but having a counter rally that takes place some distance away. And because a number of these groups want to have the violence occur, want to have the aggravation that then they can come off looking as a victim of some kind, certainly in, in dealing with that. Um, uh, but, but you know, there, there's there's lots of other. Uh, things that can be done, as Anne was explaining, with you know the standing in line in the grocery store, and you hear that racist rant. How do you step in and um, keep your own safety, while also ensuring the safety of that individual, individuals that are being targeted, uh, certainly as well. We um, at the Fair Housing Center of Central Indiana launched earlier in March of this year what we're calling the Central Indiana Alliance Against Hate because we had seen an escalation of hate, both hate-based crimes as what we call hate-based incidents, which are lawful but still horrendous and horrific in their own way. And we launched that in March of this year, and it's already almost 60 organizational members strong, growing each year. So there certainly is um, the individuals and organizations there who want to find some way of speaking out and coming together, whether that's legislatively or just having a system or, or something in place to be able to respond effectively. It's interesting that the, the white nationalist leader, Matthew Heimbach, who actually lives in Paoli here, and he was at the rally in Charlottesville, and he called the rally of huge success and said yesterday that this, this basically shows that they need to be more active than ever. Um, right, and because a lot of white nationalist um, groups want the publicity. They want the publicity quite badly, and because they want to spread their message for free. And what better way to spread, spread your message for free than to have it on every news station? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. We do have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I, w I want to talk more just about racism that maybe we don't even realize is racism and how we can maybe kind of address some of these issues by getting started, by getting started there and addressing our own biases. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about that right after this break. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. 
and you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. I am encouraged to see everyone here to support um, our stance against hatred. NAACP and along with everyone else here, we stand for civil rights, non-discrimination, and social justice. Here today is for the people of color in this space. I know for you and for us, the struggle is not new. I myself am a daughter of refugees, and if I were up to white supremacists, I would not be here. That little hatred from the alt-right, the neo-Nazis, all these hate these hated groups that have these racist and bigot spews. They were just burrowing underground and waiting to the right moment to come out. Mr. President, you can't have it both ways. You can't blame acts of terrorism on the Islamists, but when it comes to homegrown terrorism, you blame, quote, the violence on many sides. You have to call a spade a spade. It's violence on one side the violence from white racists. No, it's bad. You're listening to a special noon edition, to, and today we're talking about the deadly white nationalist rally in Charlottesville and how as a country we move forward from this. Our guests today are Beth Applegate, she's the co-chair of Standing Up for Racial Justice Bloomington, Janine Bell, an IU Law professor at Maurer School of Law, and Amy Nelson, who's the executive director of Central Indiana Alliance Against Hate. You can join today's program by calling 812-855-0811. You can also tweet to us at Noon Edition. I want to follow up on one thing we just heard there, and that was from Sunday's rally here in Bloomington, talking about Trump. And Trump did issue this original statement where he blamed many sides for the violence. Um, So... I don't, I don't want any of you to uh, necessarily interpret Trump's words, but I guess is, is he basically alluding to the fact that these Black Lives Matter protests and these other groups, it's the equivalent to these white supremacy groups. Is that an, is that an argument? Is that, is that part of the argument here? Um, Jenny, maybe you, maybe you can chime in here. Just like, are these, are these groups equal at all? I would say that they're not equal, right? Um, that um, black, black Lives Matter protesters are not um, equal with, uh, you know, equivalent to individuals that are armed um, and um, appearing to intimidate individuals. They, black Lives Matter um, uh, protesters do not have a racial hierarchy. They're attempting to suggest that blacks are equal citizens, for instance, and call attention to violence directed at African-Americans. I think a good quote, too, that I heard recently was there was an incredible amount of violence on that Selma Bridge back in the 1960s, but Martin Luther King wasn't the one who brought the bat. And so violence can occur where there might be Black Lives Matter, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the escalators or some of those groups are the escalators of that violence that may occur. I wonder if moving forward, looking back at Charlottesville, that it's going to be, you know, just even more important that these rallies don't get violent because then what kind of message is that sending to folks who, when you're trying to encourage peace and conversation. Yes, the the rallies across the country that surge in many organi- organizations um, uh, organized, and there are still more to come this week, um, there was a very clear message that this is about solidarity and about love. And so uh, being nonviolent is certainly a core value of surge, and I think many of the organiza- organizations that are, are responding to the hate and violence we saw in Charlottesville. I think it's, we had talked about this a little bit before the break, but it's easy to look at what happened in Charlottesville and say that is a horrible thing and we want to denounce the violence that happened there. But 
racism, I think we've heard this um, white privilege and that, you know, whites are born differently than someone of color or something. Um, So I guess if we can just talk about what racism is exactly and this idea that maybe a lot of us are naturally kind of born this way. We're not born this way, but um, help me out. I think I think you know what I'm trying to say, Beth, and, and that even on a smaller scale, this is a big issue. Sure. Um, so one of the definitions that I like to, to use is racism is prejudice plus power. So there's a lot of myth out there about reverse racism. Um, Certainly when we think about implicit bias, and um, I work with a national group called Within Our Lifetime, um, which is uses the implicit bias test that was developed by Harvard and used by many organizations to measure our unconscious, right, is another word for implicit bias for or against a group of people. And um, you know what we n- know is that everyone, regardless of race or ethnicity, can have prejudice or be bigoted. But when we talk about racism, we're talking about the combination of being prejudiced plus having the power. And right now in the United States, and it has been true for hundreds of years, and may so be true, this is why we're working for racial justice and and equitable outcomes, is that white people are both prejudiced and bigoted and have implicit bias that they're not aware of, and we also have the power. So for example, think about World War II, if you will, and the the GI benefits. Um, My father fought in World War II, came back to the United States, and was able to get a college education on the GI Bill. The same African-American soldiers that that stood and fought alongside my father did not receive those same benefits. When we think about Social Security, there are many people that worked as domestics um, that were not eligible to receive the benefits of Social Security. Um, you know, in the last you know five years, redlining, which is a, a um, financial uh, practice um, to discriminate uh, against providing mortgage and loans to people to purchase homes in certain areas, and you know the the red line comes from actually redlining areas that are preserved for, as you know, Jeanine was talking about earlier, uh, neighborhoods that are predominantly held for white people. So these collections over years of unearned benefits that we have as white people simply because we're white creates um, uh, unequal uh, outcomes for other people. So we benefit from these uh, policies and practices and legislation um, that I'm referring to and other people of color do not. And over time, that creates um, more wealth um, for white people simply because of the color of our skin. So my grandfather, for instance, also fought in World War II. Um, He was not, when he returned home, he was not able to find a job where he lived. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not as if the state of Mississippi no longer had jobs. They did not have jobs for blacks that had his skills. So he had to move north without his family um, and work up north um, in order to be employed. Um, That has impacted my wealth to this day. And we see that um, at at the Fair Housing Center of Central Indiana. So we worked on housing-based discrimination cases. And in the last five years, there's been a resurgence of redlining-based lawsuits, particularly by the Department of Justice being filed. But even some of that old-school, blatant rental discrimination is, you know, back and on the rise where it was kind of dying down and it was more discrimination with a smile, more difficult to uncover. But some of those blatant forms are coming back. There is a case in Cincinnati that just reached resolution a couple years ago where an apartment, a complex owner there, put a whites-only sign up at her pool after a little 10-year-old biracial girl who was visiting her white dad one weekend went to swim in the pool. Um, We saw, you know, up in Noblesville 
Indiana, a person put up a sign that said, you know, I like Mexican people, but they don't belong here. No Mexicans on my property. And then in uh, Indianapolis, just last uh, last May, we had somebody put up a sign in front of a house that said, uh, no chin, referring to the Burmese culture uh, on there. So some of those are feeling more comfortable in coming back, whether it's housing-based discrimination and those type of forms, let alone, and those typically are under civil laws versus hate crimes that are going to be under the criminal section of law. And this is very subtle. When I was in graduate school, I tried to rent a place in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a place that was quite um, liberal. I called about an apartment, um, and the um, person was quite, the landlord was quite happy to talk to me about it. And then when I showed up the next day, not only did the person renting the apartment wonder why I was standing on her doorstep at the appointed time, she quickly said, oh, oh, that place? Oh, it's rented. Um, I'll show it to you, but it was very clear to me what was going on. Um, and the person that I was staying with said, you know, listen, I'm happy to rent the place um, for you, but, you know, I didn't want this person as my landlord if she had a problem with African Americans. One of the things that we do at the Fair Housing Center is we do testing, where we send prospective home seekers out into the market, whether it's for uh, to get information on loans or houses for sale or rentals. And we see this very often. Our testers come back not believing that or not thinking that they have been discriminated against. Testers don't really know what they're testing for, but we know by the analysis of sending in a black tester and a short time later sending in a white tester looking for the same type of unit, same sort of time, similar price range, we can see how they're treated, whether that is through them being told that I, I actually don't have a unit available for six weeks, white tester has shown about four different units or whether that's through subtle things like when it comes to um, uh, specials being offered to the white tester but not being offered to the black tester. We had a, a we issue, we've issued a number of reports, but one of the reports that were released, we um, talked about a test at a very large complex in Indianapolis. Our black tester went to the property. That was the first time that the agent saw that the tester was black. He was handed a key and told, go ahead and go look at your unit yourself. This is a big complex. He went looked at it, came back to the office. I'm really interested in learning more. How much is it? What's the deposit? Agent said, well, what's your email address? He said, I don't like giving it out. And she responded back, then I'm so sorry, but I cannot provide you with any information. He walked away. Well, she didn't want to give me information because I wouldn't give my email address. Not knowing that our white tester showed up just a few hours later, is driven to the unit in the golf cart with the agent, sold on the amenities the entire time, comes back to the office, is never asked for an email address, and given a price sheet on three available units. That's discrimination that can be happening that impacts our ability to improve our lives, build equity, find places for our kids to get into better schools, be closer to our jobs. And our black tester did not know he had been discriminated against because it, he was set up to fail in that transaction. Are, are these policies or is this something, like you were talking about earlier, implicit? What, are, what, what have you found in, in the follow-up? So some t it's... We, when we uh, conduct our investigations, um, under fair housing laws, it can be both intentional-based discrimination or unintentional. The impact ends up being that a group of people protected under fair housing laws ends up being treated differently than others, then that's, that's a covered act under federal fair housing. You don't have to be intentional in your policy if your policy has a discriminatory impact. But very often, those type of situations, there is an intent behind it or why aren't you offering the three units to the black tester who showed up? And that's where the insidiousness of internalized white supremacy comes. Um, we don't know what we don't know about ourselves. Um, and so some of what Amy is talking about, we also see in employment within HR. Um, there have been many tests that have been done where the exact same uh, cover letter and resume have been in pro uh, provided to potential employers. One's name is John Smith and one is uh, Jose. And, you know, time after time, um, the white sounding named person is selected for the, uh, for the position over the person of color 
who has a uh, an ethnic sounding name. Um, there are even statistics that show if uh, a white person has gone to prison and a person of color has gone to prison, that um, white employers somehow negate in their minds the same criminal record, but hold it against again the person of color. And um, you know. Interesting enough, around gender discrimination, uh, orchestras in, uh, have led the way um, because they were realizing that disproportionately uh, men were uh, playing in orchestras. So they, many of them now do a blind audition where um, they put uh, the... A person behind a screen and they listen to the person perform without knowing ethnicity, gender, et cetera. Um, so I would I, I agree with Amy. It's it's both in, intentional. There is discriminatory laws and practices in place, and it's implicit in what we don't know about ourselves. 812-855-0811. That's the number to call if you want to join the conversation. Let's go to the phones now. We have John from Bloomington. John, go ahead. Hello. Uh, when Lauren Davis at the Herald Times uh, published a story back in the winter, I believe, on Matt Heimbach, um, mm-hmm. the uh, uh, founder of the Traditionalist Workers Party. Um, Part of the context that was not included in that story or in follow-ups is that, according to the FBI records, the Paoli police have not been compliant with Indiana's bias crime law for most of the period between now and back in 2000 when the law was passed. and I was in touch with her and a board member of Herald Times, hoping that they would uh, try to advocate for the commitment of resources from the Herald Times to look into the issue of police noncompliance in our area with the bias crime reporting law. I also have a phone call into Ms. Whitmire about this too. And uh, I would like to suggest, and perhaps Ms. Bell particularly could uh, comment, I think that any quote-unquote hate crime law, bias crime law that got passed, which only included the uh, ability for a judge to uh, increase a penalty if bias was a motivation, is, is a step forward, however... I think a continuation of the required bias crime reporting law component should be a component, or it should continue with money for training police in how to recognize hate crimes, bias crimes, and uh, a penalty for not complying with the state's law. Because I, I think if you only have a bias crime law that affects what judges can do, um, it sort of outsources civic responsibility for making your community uh, friendly and safe for all kinds of people. And I think it's the city, it is also our regular citizens' responsibility in places like Paoli or Bloomington or Columbus or to, to do that. Okay, I, I want to jump in here and give Janine a, a chance to respond. Uh-huh. I, I think you raised some excellent points. Um, there is one thing to understand about law enforcement um, and their incentives to report. As I understand it, there is a collection of data requirement under Indiana law. That is the hate crime law that we have. Right. Um, Law enforcement is supposed to collect data. It's very hard for law enforcement to collect data if they, A, um, and you mentioned training, don't know what they're collecting, and um, B, if there's no criminal statute. Law enforcement officers are preoccupied with, and I think this is something that citizens want them um, want them to do. They're pro- preoccupied with investigating crime. If hate crimes are not 
or um, incidents are not crimes, it is very hard for law enforcement officers to see their interest associated with collecting uh, this data. So um, even though there is a statute that says, yes, you have to report numbers, um, turning in zeros is reporting numbers. Um, you are reporting what you see because there are simply not the incentives to investigate. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the call, John. 812-855-0811. We'll go to Jordan now from Bloomington. Go ahead, Jordan. Hi. Um, I used to think that the issue of prejudice was so important that we addressed it um, every day in our classroom. I mean, every, every week in our classroom, we spent some time looking at a variety of prejudice. This was with eight and nine-year-olds. Uh, and this was at a private school. When our kids went to the public school, they learned a lot more about how prejudice actually takes place because they saw a lot of it and it didn't seem to be addressed. So the fact is we have a lot of, a lot of people with a lot of prejudice and many of us with some prejudice. And it will continue, um, though all the efforts you're talking about will make some difference. I think in the end, we have to start with families and schools, and I'm wondering um, what you all have to say about that. I think that's su such a good point. Thank you for the call, Jordan. Beth, would you like to chime in? Sure. Um, I agree. Uh, Jordan, that it is both and. We need to start with families and um, surge uh, as part of uh, one of the many task force. We focus on families, and so we have uh, resources available and uh, groups of white folks who want to raise uh, anti-racist uh, children, um, providing them uh, uh places to peer mentor one another, providing reading materials. Um, yesterday, I just uh, uh, put out on, on my Facebook feed and um, with a shout out to the MCCSE teachers here in Bloomington, a new curriculum that was put out by Teaching Tolerance on Charlottesville. And so what we know is it's critical that white parents um, talk to their kids. Um, we often, um, and there's a new Procter & Gamble ad out about the conversations that black parents have to have their, with their children about coming home alive. And so white parents have an equal responsibility to um, talk in age-appropriate ways with their children, and there are plenty of resources out there. Surge has them. Teaching Tolerance has them. Um, you don't have to uh, Google far to find those kinds of resources that will equip white parents to talk about um, bullying, uh, discrimination, and, um, and how to respond. So I do agree that it needs to start young and in the home, we need to make sure that our educators have the training uh, necessary uh, to address and respond in the classroom uh, to bullying, to prejudice. Um, two students uh, from Bloomington High School North joined me in the spring for the National Education Association um, Summit and had the opportunity to speak before 2,000 educators, and they got a standing ovation. So I worked with students from 10-year-old uh, to a college talking about what the impact of the lack of equity and inclusion had been on them um, throughout their education process. And so I was so proud of the two Bloomington North High School students um, who talked about their own experience here in Bloomington and what that impact had been on them and what educators, it was a call to action about what they needed their educators to learn, to know, and to do in the classroom. One of the things that we have put together at the Fair Housing Center through the Central Indiana and Alliance Against Hate is we do have a hate crimes tab on our page, and under that is a list of resources, some of which that Beth had mentioned, Teaching Tolerance. The Anti-Defamation League has put together some phenomenal training tools for kids across ages, for both teachers as well as for parents. 
And then here in Indiana, we have the Great Lakes uh, Equity Institute, which has also put together some really great training tools as well. But we have a number of the resources there. If folks are interested in taking a look, you just go to fhcci.org, and you can choose the Hate Crimes tab, and you'll see a number of our resources available. And one of the things that's ordinary citizens that experience um, acts of hatred of Ron's can do is to report them to Bloomington police. Um, I experienced an act of violence, and I was going to brush it under the rug despite having um, studied hate crime for 20 years. And I said something about this incident uh, to friends, and friends said, listen, report this incident to the police. And even though there isn't um, hate crime legislation in Indiana, I called I was immediately connected um, with a law enforcement officer who was wonderful, right, um, in the report. And I'm a person who knows exactly what you should do and exactly what you should not do. I've read situations about hundreds of people uh, reporting situations to the police. And my own personal um, experience was that law enforcement behaved very well here in Bloomington. Unfortunately, we're out of time for this show, and I apologize. We didn't have time to get into more of these complicated issues, but thank you all for being here today. This was a great conversation. Thank you to our producer, Angelo Bautista, engineer Michael Pashkash, and my co-host today, J.D. Gray. I'm Sarah Whitmire. This has been Noon Edition. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.